how cool is it to be able to say, oh, not only do we know God, but he knows us. In fact, he knows us so well, he knit us together in our mother's womb. He knows us by name and by nickname. He knows the number of hairs upon our head. He knows our sitting down and our uprising. He knows our thoughts from afar. Not only do I know my maker, my maker knows me. But guys, if we're honest with ourselves, it's the third part of that purpose statement that's hard for us, isn't it? Not only to know our maker and to be known by our maker, but to make our maker known to other people. On an earthly level, it's cool to know someone famous and to be known by someone famous and to make them known to other people. But when it comes to God, who others can't see, whose voice they can't hear, and especially in the midst of a world that's hostile and averse to our God, it's a whole different thing. So let me ask you men in here this evening as we kick things off, honestly, and I want you to be candid with me. How many of you in here, when you think about walking up to a perfect stranger and telling them that they have violated the law of a holy God, that there's coming a day of judgment during which they will stand before God and give account for their lives, and if they don't repent and place their faith in the loving death and resurrection of Christ on their behalf, they will face the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. How many of you honestly feel a twinge of nervousness when you think of doing that? Raise your hand. Okay, the rest of you, you know what the Bible says about liars. Yeah, I can relate to you. My hand goes up with you. Ray Comfort's hand goes up with you. We understand what it's like to be nervous and, and, and you know, just totally petrified at times. Ray Comfort has preached the gospel to just about every breathing thing on the planet, and the guy still deals with that. You know, you have, of course, that, that fearless brother in every church, guy that calls you up on Saturday morning. Hey, bro, what are you doing? Oh, nothing, man. No plans today at all. Just chilling, you know. Cool, you want to go share the gospel with me? Uh, but yeah, but you know what, bro? I just remembered I have a, I have a hair appointment that's going to last all day. But you're bald, right? You know how it goes. But that, that's kind of the sense that we get as men. In fact, we would much rather do anything than share the gospel. I knew a guy years ago who was uh, like a man's man, Italian dude, as masculine as you can get, deep, booming voice, right? Most of the earthquakes in California were caused by his voice, no doubt. Big old mustache. The thing had its own zip code. It was so big. This guy was a police officer, and he said he would, on any given day, rather be in an alleyway with two thugs aiming their guns at his head than to share the gospel with a little old lady. So, brothers, you're not alone, and I want you to understand that this evening as you think about this theme that's probably making your heart race right now, even as you hear it. No, you're not alone. And if we're honest with ourselves, we would much rather do anything than to go up to a stranger and make our maker known to them. We would rather go to a Bible study, go to church service, go to a Christian concert. We'd much rather hang out at a men's conference like this, go to a prayer meeting, than to share the gospel. But I want to ask you a question. Is it not because someone at some point in your life cared enough to share the gospel with you that you're able to enter into all the glorious things that are a part of our faith. And brothers, we have to understand that understanding our purpose of not just knowing our maker and being known by our maker, but making our maker known is perhaps one of the most important topics that can be addressed today 
to the men of God's church. Because unless we are fulfilling one of the main callings on our lives, we're not going to be all that God has called us to be as his people. We need to recognize, brothers, that we were created to glorify God and to bring him pleasure through obedience. Obedience, there's that that dirty word within Christianity today. But that's what we're called to, to glorify God through obedience. We need to recognize that we are created to glorify the Lord by bringing him pleasure through obedience. We need to understand who we are as Christians and what our true purpose is in terms of knowing our maker, being known by our maker, and as it relates to us tonight, making our maker known. And for that, we'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 beginning in verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I wasn't born here in the United States. I was born in Lebanon back in 1975, immigrated to the States with my family back in 1980, and when I arrived to these glorious shores, I did not speak a lick of English. The only things I knew how to say were hello and give me chocolate. That was about it. And as time went on, I eventually ended up becoming infatuated with the English language. And there are certain phrases or sayings or adages in the English language that have become dear to me. And one of those is the phrase paradigm shift. Paradigm shift. Paradigm shift is indicative of someone having had a specific perspective on something having looked at something in a certain way, and then receiving new information that all of a sudden alters and transforms their entire perspective on that particular thing. A good friend of our ministry told us about his brother who lived in Utah a number of years ago, who one day was taken by a group of masked men with knives and pushed into the back room of a building. He was knocked out. They ripped open his chest and tore out his heart. And there were people outside that room who knew what was going on, had the ability to go in there and stop them, but did absolutely nothing about it. Now, let me give you some more information. That group of masked men were heart surgeons. The masks were surgical masks. The knives were scalpels. The back room of the building was the operating room of a hospital. They knocked him out with anesthesia. They ripped his chest open surgically. They tore his heart out and replaced it with a new good one because his heart was bad and he was dying. And the reason why no one went in there and did anything to stop it is because they loved the man and wanted to see his life saved. You, my brothers, have just experienced mass paradigm shift. What was in one instance a gruesome murder scene in a split second suddenly became in your minds what it really was, a life-saving mission. And this passage here in 2 Corinthians 5, my brothers, is, if you would, a paradigm shift type passage that can transform your entire life and your entire being 
when it comes to what your purpose is in life. And Paul begins for context back in chapter 9 and in verse 9 of, of our passage here. And he says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says, brothers, our aim in life, our goal, our ambition, our passion, our ultimate purpose in life is whether we are present in God's presence in heaven or whether we're absent and still here on this earth, we live with a burning passion to be well-pleasing to him. To bring him pleasure in absolutely everything that we do. And then he connects that with the fact that there's coming a day when we're going to stand before the Lord and actually give account for what we did in keeping with living to bring him pleasure. I praise God this isn't the great white throne judgment where unbelievers will stand and, and receive eternal punishment and eternal judgment. But it's called the Bema seat of Christ. It's kind of like the Olympic seat where the judges sit to award rewards for those that have competed. But it's not going to be a walk in the park. We're going to give account to God for what we did with what he entrusted into our care. And Paul says, guys, listen, our aim, our ambition in life is to be well-pleasing to him in everything. A number of years ago, I gathered my family together in our living room, and I unveiled for them what I called the Zwayne Family Vision Statement. And it reads like this to gladly and passionately glorify God in every thought, affection, word, and deed, while constantly enjoying him as our greatest pleasure and most precious treasure. I've memorized that. My wife has memorized that. Our five children have memorized that. It's become the popular theme of our family devotions. It's become the popular topic of discussion in our home. Because if there's anything I want my children to know, and their children to know, and their children's children to know, it's that they were made by God and for God, and that their aim in life is to live, to bring him pleasure and glory through all that they do. And guys, I got to just tell you, life is short. James tells us that life is like a vapor. It's like hot breath on cold air. We see it for a moment, and then it vanishes away, and it's gone forever. Time is moving quickly. The clock is ticking. My father... My biological father, this January, just celebrated his 111th birthday. I'm 83, but plastic surgery works wonders. But no, my dad, he's, yeah, we just celebrated his 111th birthday. We're getting ready to change his legal name to Methuselah, all right? And I know that as you hear that, it's like, what? How can that be? There's a website that has him as the oldest man in California, number two in America. He's like in the top 50 in the world. And I know as you hear that, you're like, come on, man, that's crazy. That's such a long time. But I assure you, brothers, that to him, it's been but the blink of an eye. I heard him one day crying over pictures of his mom and dad that he was looking at who died like 60 years ago. But to him, it's as if though it were yesterday. And when this is all said and done and we stand before the Lord, I assure you that the things that were not cool to have done in the eyes of man in this world will be the coolest things to have done when we stand before the Lord and give account. And we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? I don't know if you guys remember that show called What Would You Do? That hidden camera 
social experiment show where they set up a social scenario where someone's being kind of bullied or racism is going on or someone's being picked on or whatever. They got hidden cameras and there's actors involved, but they're unsuspecting people in a coffee shop or restaurant and, and they see how people react. And then at the end, inevitably, John Quinones walks out with his crew. He comes up to people, tells them what's going on. And you'll always typically see the people who didn't do the right thing. They'll look at the camera and in so many words, they'll say, oh man, I wish I would have wish I would have done the right thing. I wish I would have spoken up. And then you'll see the people that did do the right thing. When they realize what it was all about, they'll look at the camera and they'll say, I'm glad I did. When you stand before the Lord to give account for your life, when it came to bringing him pleasure in all things, you don't want to be the I wish I would have type of person. You want to be the I'm glad I did type of person. And now Paul gives us the basis for which we're to do this. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So Paul's saying, listen, this call to live to please the Lord in all things is not baseless. It's not foundationless. It's rooted in the fact that he died for all. Why? So that those of us who are now alive should live no longer for ourselves, no longer to please ourselves, but to please him who did what? Who died for us and rose again. You know, I'll tell you, I'm often extremely convicted about how many passages of Scripture I have not been struck by as I should be. I love God's Word. It's the passion of my life. I, I'm the national spokesman and host for a, an organization called the National Bible Bee Competition, where young people memorize God's Word. I mean, we, the grand prize used to be $100,000. This thing is no joke. These kids are memorizing a thousand scriptures, and I love the Word. I'm, I'm, I'm working on my 14th book in the New Testament, which will get me to over half the books of the New Testament memorized. I love God's Word. I don't say that to boast, but to my shame, because there are passages that I've read and I've recited and I've had memorized for years that I don't get struck by the way that I should. And when we read something like this, or we hear something like this, that he, God Almighty, died for us. Does that strike us? Or do we have what I call the John 3.16 syndrome, right? We can recite it forwards, backwards, and in our sleep, and we forget the significance of it. That God humbled himself, became a man, subjected himself to his own creation, he was blasphemed by the vocal cords and tongues and lips that he fashioned and formed and was affixed to a piece of wood with iron stakes that were created by him. God Almighty died to save us. Paul Tripp in his book that he wrote called Dangerous Calling talked about how value impacts behavior. And he gives this illustration with money. And I want to convey that to you this evening. You know, if I were to hold up a little piece of paper right now, rectangular in shape, green in color, Benjamin Franklin's face on it, the digits 100, and in God we trust, scrawled across it, you don't need to be a genius to figure out that's a $100 bill. But there's something attached to that little piece of paper besides knowing it's a $100 bill. You understand it has the value of $100. And why is that? Because you know the United States government that is a legitimate authority has ascribed that value to it and that impacts your behavior in connection with that little piece of paper. What you do with it, where you put it, how much of it you'll stack up to get what you want, right? 
There's another piece of currency that jangles around annoyingly in our pockets, a little round copper thing, right? Which is worth one one hundredth of that piece of paper. There are times when I'm going through town, I'll reach for something in my pocket, I'll pull it out, I'll hear clink, 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 I'll look down. And if you're anything like me, I don't give it the time of day, I don't even pick it up. You ever do that with a hundred dollar bill? If you do, let me know where you live. I kind of like to hang around you a little bit, you know? No, man, we'll jump into shark-infested water off the Golden State Bridge to get that, catch that thing in midair, right? But imagine the United States government all of a sudden switched the values and that little piece of paper became worth a penny and that penny became worth $100. Would your behavior change toward those pieces of currency? Yeah. First thing you do is you'd be buckets of tears over the pennies you didn't keep or pick up because you'd be a millionaire by now. And then you'd start using that $100 bill as a scrap piece of paper or a napkin to wipe your hands with. Brothers, how much do you value the fact that he died for you? Because that value should spur you to live no longer for yourselves, but for him who died for you and rose again. And then Paul says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This is a verse that we see in Christian bookstores when they existed on the decorative items that we buy and put in our homes. We see it in Christian people's offices or in their rooms, right? But do we understand the context of it? If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. What old things? The old things of living for ourselves, living for our pleasure. All things have become new, and we've now been given the ability to live for him and to please him. And now he crescendos into our text, verse 18. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul says, now all things are of God who has what? Reconciled us to himself. This is what he's been talking about. God has brought us back into right relationship with him. And now he has called us to be ministers of reconciliation. Doing what? Going out and telling others about him who died for us and rose again. So that what? They could come to know him as we have. And that they can now begin to no longer live for themselves but for him. And in keeping with that, Paul gives us our first paradigm shift. And what is that? It's this. The brothers, if you are in here right now and you profess the name of Christ, you call yourself by the name of Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus, and you right now are carrying a title of ambassador of Jesus Christ, and you are at present in full-time, 100% full-time ministry. You say, what are you talking about, bro? Wait, 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 wait. Slow down here, man. I'm a dentist. I'm an attorney. I'm a construction worker. I'm a teacher. What are you talking about? Yeah. Wait, isn't ministry for the evangelist or the missionary or the pastor or the parachurch organization leader? I'm just the average guy living my life. What are you talking about in full-time ministry? Ambassador of Jesus Christ. Brothers, if... You are in here now and you profess Christ. This is who you are and what God has entrusted in your care, whether you want it or not, whether you like it or not, 
It's just the fact of a matter. In fact, it is as factual as you being a human being if you have human DNA. There are some people today that don't want to be human, right? I saw a guy who modified his face to look like a tiger, another guy like a, a leopard, tattooed leopard spots all over his skin. This one guy had fangs put in, whiskers, the whole deal. This other guy wants to be an alien, you know, changed his eyes and his head and put stuff in there. But it doesn't matter. If you have human DNA, you are a human being. We never look at a human being and say, are they a human being or not? The question that we're faced with is not, are they a human being? It's what kind of human being are they? And every one of you in here right now who professes Christ and claims to be a Christian is an ambassador of Jesus Christ. The question is, is what kind of ambassador are you? Have you been faithfully fulfilling your call as his ambassador? Have you been faithfully living out your duty in the full-time ministry of reconciliation that God has given you? And what is an ambassador? An ambassador is someone who represents another, who goes on behalf of another and speaks the things that are related to them as they've been instructed. And what's amazing is when an ambassador has sent the entire power and wealth of a nation that sends an ambassador goes with that ambassador and stands behind him. And the thing that overjoys my heart is the fact that God never calls us to do something as his people that he doesn't equip us to do. One of my favorite verses is Ephesians 2.10. And it says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, listen, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love that word prepared, especially when it's coupled with the word beforehand, and especially when those two words are connected to the word food. Amen, brothers? I grew up in a Middle Eastern home, and so I hardly knew how to do anything as it related to food. My mom did everything. My brother was older, 14 years older than me. He was semi-retired in his 20s, had 52 units of property, three gas stations, a limo, or chauffeur, but he still lived at home. That was Arab culture. And he didn't know how to do a thing. My mom saw he was ruined. I'd come home from school. Mom, make me a sandwich. Make you a sandwich. Make yourself a sandwich. You're going to grow up like your brother, and you're going to marry a woman who's not going to feed you the way I do. You're going to end up starving to death. She was wrong as my bathroom scale <laughs> would show. My beautiful wife, Rachel, loves to prepare my food beforehand, and I love to eat that food that she prepares beforehand. I remember one time she told me about a restaurant in our area called The Melting Pot. I don't know how many of you here have heard of The Melting Pot, but it's, it's famous for its chocolate fondue. Yeah, amen. A brother back there is like, yeah, preach it, yeah. And I, I love, you know, give me chocolate. I love chocolate. So I heard about this chocolate fondue. They bring it to your table, and it melts in this pot, and you've got marshmallows, and apples and graham crackers and strawberries. Man, I was excited. So I said, honey, make reservations. So she made reservations. And we went and we ordered our chocolate fondue. And, and uh, come to find, too, this restaurant also served food, believe it or not. And so, you know, we ordered our chocolate fondue. We ordered the food. I didn't care about the food, you know. And we're sitting there. My poor wife's talking, wah, 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 wah. I mean, I'm like, I couldn't concentrate one bit. I just wanted that chocolate fondue, right? So finally, they start coming out and they bring out these Bowls full of raw chicken, raw meat, raw vegetables. I'm like, what? The guy serving us the food looks at me, and you can tell by the look on his face that he had seen the look on my face on many other men's faces. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, man, you cook your own food here. What? 
I almost ran outside to make sure it said restaurant on the outside of the building. Bro, isn't that the point of coming to a restaurant to not cook your own food? Trying to imagine the maniacal genius in the kitchen who hatched this demonic plot, you know? He's like, bring them here, make them cook their own food, charge them twice the going rate. Whoa! I was waiting for someone to come and escort us to do our dishes in the back afterward, you know? But brothers, God doesn't do that with us. God has prepared our evangelistic works beforehand that we should walk in them. You think God would come and say, hey, look, I'm going to call you to do the most important thing that any human being has ever been called to do in the history of the universe, be my ambassadors, fulfill my ministry of reconciliation, and I'm going to have you go just kind of figure it out on your own. No, he prepares our good works beforehand. Here's paradigm shift number two. 2 Timothy 2, 20 to 21. But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the master. Listen. Prepared for every good work. Oh, man, this is awesome right here. Did you get that? You, you saw what we read in the first passage, Ephesians 2.10, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And now we're told in Timothy that we can be prepared for our good work. God has prepared our works beforehand. Here's what it looks like. That means as we walk along the path of life, there are these nicely, neatly prepackaged good works of evangelism that God has prearranged. And as we are prepared for those good works, as we're walking along the path of life, then what happens is we come along and in a perfect point in time and space, what happens is something I call the divine convergence as they come together in this perfect confluence and we walk right into them. We undo the ribbon on the big box of the good work of evangelism. God has prepared and we walk into it with glory. Guys, if you've never experienced that, it is one of the most amazing things in existence. And you know what's so cool? Is that God has given us this privilege. See, when we're not moved by this, it's because we have forgotten who God is and who we are. Let me just give you a quick reminder. Right now, if a beam of light came flying through this room at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, we happened to have our saddle handy and we hopped on this beam of light and flew, flew through space, in a second and a half, we'd be at the moon. In nine minutes, we'd reach the sun 93 million miles away. In four years, we'd arrive at Alpha Centauri, which is a star that's closest to our solar system. But if we jumped on that beam of light at the beginning of our galaxy and flew all the way across to the other end of our galaxy, the Milky Way, at 186,000 miles per second nonstop, it would take us 100,000 years to complete our journey. Second and a half to the moon, nine minutes to the sun, four years to Alpha Centauri, 100,000 years to cross our galaxy. Brothers, there are over 100 billion galaxies with over 100 billion stars in each galaxy. And the Bible says about our God that he spans the universe with his hand, that heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain him. And he's called you and me to be his ambassadors. Woo! That should move us. With sobriety, it should humble us and it should awaken us to the seriousness of the responsibility. We need to be like the leper in Mark chapter 1. You remember that leper in Mark chapter 1? 
Leprosy was the most despicable disease of that time. I mean, your, your body parts were falling off. You were ostracized from society, your family. You were living in a colony, dying a slow, miserable death. Jesus touches them, heals them in an instant, skin new like a baby. And he looks at him and says, but don't tell anyone about what I just did for you. <laughs> Every time I, I, I share that, I crack up. Uh, seriously, really? And what does it say? It says he went out and he began to proclaim it freely so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the cities. He was in deserted places and people came to Jesus from every direction. This one man made Jesus famous. We have some similarities, but big differences. Like him, we had a terrible disease. Like him, we were touched and healed by Jesus. Like him, we were given a command. But our disease was far worse. Our healing was far greater and our command was far more important. He told him, don't say anything. He told us, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Don't we have a story to tell, brothers, about how God changed us and transformed us and revolutionized our lives for his glory? And I know that at times there's that nervousness, there's that anxiety, there's that fear, but we need to recognize that God is the one who goes with us. We're his ambassadors. He gives us all we need. He prepares the good works beforehand. We just need to be prepared and then go and watch him work. And I know you're thinking, but I can't, bro. I don't know how to. I don't. A number of years ago, I worked with a brother who was amazing in the workplace. His family owned the business where I worked, and he knew the price of every product, the history of everything we sold. He was so great with boldly representing the, the store's policy to customers. And one day he said to me, Easy, I don't understand how you memorize scripture, how you know all these things about Christianity, how you witness to people. I remember I wrote him a letter, and I said, Brother, what's the difference between memorizing? A price like $3.16, as he had, and memorizing John 3.16. What's the difference between memorizing facts about things that we sell in our store and facts about Christianity? What's the difference between boldly representing our source policy to customers and boldly representing the gospel to the lost? Sure, there's an element of warfare that's definitely there, but more often than not, it's where we invest our time and our heart and our energy. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have been given a ministry of reconciliation. Our purpose is not just to know our maker and be known by our maker, but to make our maker known. That's, that's our calling. We are ambassadors. What kind are we? Brothers, as I wrap up, I just want to share a few divine convergence stories with you to whet your appetite for my own life. One of my favorite places to share the gospel is on airplanes. Because when you're 30,000 feet in the air and the guy next to you doesn't like it, you can just simply say, there's the door. We got to have some dad jokes in here, guys, right? And so it's one of my favorite places. I remember one time Ray Comfort and I, we were, we were coming back from a trip out of town and we... Um, get on the plane. I sit down, and there's this young man next to me who's probably 20 years old. I came to discover his name was Kellen. We strike up a conversation, talked about natural things, and I transitioned naturally and began to share my testimony and then the gospel with him. He was really open and receptive, and I thought, man, this is great. And so then I reach into my bag to pull out a DVD of a movie that we produced called Audacity. I thought it would be a good one for him. So I pull it out, and I go to give it to him, and I look, and I realized that I had also brought other DVDs of another movie we produced called Genius about the life of John Lennon, one of the uh, Beatles. And I already brought it out. I'm thinking, this kid has no idea who the Beatles are, right? I'm like, uh, but I'm like, I already pulled it out. I go, man, you ever heard of the Beatles? His eyes go as wide as saucers. He goes, what? He goes, man, I'm a huge Beatles fan. No, I'm an insane Beatles fan. I'm like, whoa, bro, let it be. <laughs> let it be. <laughs> All you need is love right now, bro. Chill. 
He goes, man, I grew up listening to the Beatles. I love the Beatles. I can't believe this. You produced this? I mean, the guy was going crazy, right? In the meantime, Ray Comfort was a few rows up, and he was, he was sitting next to a young lady named Stephanie, who was of Jewish descent, as Ray is, of course, as well, and who worked for the Air Force, and who was, get this, deathly afraid of flying. <laughs> right, I said she's in the Air Force, right? What are we cranking out in our Air Force? So Ray begins to share the gospel with her and to tell her about the Messiah and to comfort her, right? Some people need a little ray of sunshine. Uh, of sunshine. She needed a little ray of comfort, like literally, all five foot five of him. So Ray begins to share the gospel with her and tell her about the Jewish Messiah. And at the end, he looks at her and he, say, do you, he says, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And she looked at him and she said, now I do. We got off the plane, and I sensed like something wasn't right the whole time. I looked at my phone, and I realized that Ray and I were both, uh, we were both supposed to be seated in seat 20A and 20B right next to each other. But being the dunces that we are, when we checked in, we checked in at separate kiosks instead of the same one, and we got switched around. Hey, me sitting down with the insane Beatles fan with a Beatles DVD, and Ray, the Jew, sitting next to the Jewish girl who needed a little ray of comfort. Brothers, that's what you call divine convergence. Our good works were prepared beforehand. We were prepared for them. We knew our maker. We were known by our maker, but we were making our maker known according to God's design. Another time I was coming back from a trip, and no, you know what? I don't have time. I, Ryan said he'll kill me if I go over 45 minutes. So uh, you guys may be familiar with um, the comedian Penn Teller, uh, Penn Jillette, sorry, Penn and Teller, they were, they were duo, but Penn Jillette, he's a comedian and a magician. He's also a, a rabid atheist, hates Christianity, tears Bibles to pieces. One day he talked about someone coming up to him at one of his events at the end and giving him a Bible, and I want you to hear what he said in this video. I mean, he said, I brought this for you, and he handed me a uh, Gideon pocket edition um, I thought I said from the New Testament, but I also thought it was Psalms from the New Testament, right? Or, uh, Psalms from the New, just part of the New Testament. Little book about this big, this thick, you know. He said, I wrote in the front of it, and I wanted you to have this. I'm kind of uh, proselytizing. And then he said, I'm a businessman. I'm, I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye and did all of this. And uh, it was really wonderful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. But he was not uh, defensive. And he looked me right in the eyes. And he was truly complimentary. It wasn't in any way, it didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice and sane and looked me in the eyes and talked to me and then gave me this Bible. And I've always said, you know, that I, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, uh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. 
And atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself. Uh, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, so that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Ray Comfort prayed for years that he could share the gospel with Penn Jillette, and one thing after the other kept falling through until one year we were in D.C., and we were filming for our movie called The Atheist Delusion, and he was, Ray was interviewing Lawrence Krauss, who's a famous physicist and atheist, and we get out of the car, and Lawrence says, I want you to meet my friend Ray Penn Jillette. Ray stood on the street there of D.C. and shared the gospel for 30 minutes with Penn Jillette, and at the end of the conversation, he said to him, Penn, I'm tackling you right now. Penn goes, what? What are you talking about? He says, you remember that video you made about how, how much, you know, you, if someone had a truck coming toward them, you would tackle them because you cared and how you hate it when people don't tell others that there's a heaven and a hell? He said, that's what I'm doing right now. And he said, Penn, you need to get right with God. Penn Jillette and his friends start crossing the street to go to their hotel across the way. And all of a sudden, we hear the screeching of tires. We look, and we see Penn and his friend pinned up against the vehicle. A car got so close to hitting them. In fact, he said on the radio, it hit his friend's pant leg. And Ray just got done telling him he's talking to him from being hit by a vehicle. And then we end up finding out later that that Bible that Penn Jillette had received was a Bible that our ministry produces called the Evidence Bible that was given to him. That's what you call divine convergence. So brothers, don't just know your maker and be known by your maker, but make your maker known and recognize that that is your true purpose in life. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for my brothers here that you would work in their hearts and minds and souls. You would stir them to recognize today their purpose to be used by you as instruments for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, brothers.